Hello, my name is Juan de Castro and you're listening to Making Risk Flow. Every episode, I sit down with my industry-leading guests to demystify digital risk flows, share practical knowledge, and help you use them to unlock scalability in commercial insurance. So welcome everybody again to the next episode of Making Risk Flow. Today, I'm joined by Steve Wilkins, who I've known for a long time, and it's really fantastic that you've accepted to join me in this episode. So thank you so much for joining. If you can give us a brief overview of your background and we'll get from there. Yeah, thanks, Juan. And, and yeah, great to be on the podcast and thank you for inviting me. Quick background on me and kind of where I've come from. So um, I started at Hiscox in London working as a uh, treaty reinsurance cap modeler. So I, I used to sit and model the impact of hurricanes and earthquakes on large property portfolios, which is interesting. It's a really long way from what I'm doing now, but has some nice tangential kind of pieces, which is good. Uh, yeah, that was a great introduction to the, the technical side of insurance, and I learned a lot within that team. But um, after a few years doing that, I then jumped ship a little bit and moved into our, our central strategy team at Hiscox. Got to work with some great managers in that place and learned some. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's the plug for one. You know, got, got to learn a lot about strategy and see something from a completely different angle compared to you know technical reinsurance pricing. So that was really exciting. And then a few other moves under my belt at Hiscox. I ran a small data science lab for a while. Eventually landing in my current role, which is to sit with the underwriting initiative team at Hiscox USA as head of casualty. Fantastic. And I, this was one of the, I mean, obviously I love chatting to you, Steve, but I think one of the reasons I thought it was particularly interesting to get your perspective in the podcast is you span across very different profiles of roles, right? From very technical to our actuarial type of roles to very strategic ones, now leading a PL. And I'm sure it would be a really interesting chat. So you mentioned your current role is you're leading casualty in the U.S. So perhaps give us an overview of the type of products you offer in that space to give some context to the chat. Yeah, sure. So, so his course USA is, is all commercial insurance, and we focus on small commercial. And for us in the U.S., that's anything, any customer with a revenue below $25 million or kind of equivalent sizing. So the larger end of that is kind of getting to that middle market, but really a lot of our customers are at that nano and micro size, and you'll see more of that as, as we talk through today. Uh, in terms of the portfolio as a whole, we, we organize under three practices. So there's the casualty practice that I get to own. That's small ticket general liability and small ticket BOP. For those who aren't familiar with the BOP acronym, that's business owner's policy. It's kind of like a commercial package that you might see in the UK, a mixture of general liability and, and some property and contents coverage. And then there's two other practices. There's professional risk, which really covers our professional liability, obviously kind of a cornerstone product for the Hiscox is something that we love in the US. And then finally, our specialty practice, which is some of the more exciting stuff, right? That's cyber, media, terrorism, DNO, all the kind of fruity, longer tail stuff that we think about in the US. But for me, my book is Casualty, that's GL and Bob. Really, the customers I look after, they're, they're digitally traded 99% of the time. You know, that means really small customers. I think something like 95% of our customer base is below 500K in revenue. They're typically you know, one-person companies or a few, a few people within an organization. More often than not, they're just starting out. So a lot of these customers won't have a footprint previous to coming to Hiscox. They're, they're really at the start of that kind of entrepreneurial journey. And you know, we're, we're selling a product which is, is getting more commoditized within the market. But there's probably you know, 10 to 20 players across a, a very large, small commercial landscape in the US that are trying to do this. Our USP is focusing on that, that really small ticket stuff and doing it digitally, portfolio-driven, but managing a book now, which is close to a half million customers. So your book is 
as you said, it's pretty much like micro SME, small clients, which I'm sure some people who are not that close to that segment of the market will think it's like the easier side of the market. But reality is like almost everybody struggles to make money in that segment because yeah. it is quite challenging. It's quite hard when right? you need to like very finely balance the, I'm sure you will touch on it, like the user experience with the automation, but with like really good risk selection. As you said, you, you come from this background of analytics and strategy. So how has that influenced the way you think about underwriting in the lines of business you lead? Yeah, I, you, know, you won't be surprised really heavily. Right? So, so both the, the data analytics side, as well as that kind of strategic thinking angle, yeah, they're, they're really are the two core skills that, that we build up within this team and we think about a lot. So I guess if you think about data first, that just the size and nature of the book means that we one of our strategic assets is the amount of data we have, not just on the types of claims, but also around customer experience, you know, how customers buy, what they look for, as well as kind of where the opportunities are in the marketplace. We, we just have stacks of data and that, that really helps us make smart decisions, iterate and test, think about that growth from a, from a data-driven way, rather than kind of thinking about, you know, point solution for an individual case or an individual underwriter. So, so I love that. I mean, coming from a data background, it's, you know, I guess my insurance nerd with a load of data, and that's fantastic for me. Uh, and, then, and then as you think about that kind of strategic angle and, and some of the good learnings I've got there, I guess the biggest one for me is really around that prioritization of opportunities. The backlog of things that we would like to put through the machine is probably something like 200. And we've really got to whisk that down to what are the 10 things we're going to focus on in the next period. And, and that's tough, right? Uh, you know, everyone loves to come to the table with ideas. It's quite hard to say, no, this is the one we're going to do and do. Well, no, this is the one which is strategically important for us. You know, being able to critically think around which ones are, are the right ones we do, that's, that's tough. And I guess a real, a real important thing to be doing in the digital world now where everything costs money to make changes in the system and then move forward. As much as we talk about agile, we still work for our times. And then I, then I guess the last one I'd do is, you know, thinking about the, the horizons that we have on, on these products and kind of where we're going and balancing that kind of short-term need of maybe dealing with the pandemic or inflation or something, which is really kind of a fire burning now, versus that longer-term horizon of, you know, how do we build AI and, and NLP and all these intelligent software techniques into what we're doing to boost that customer experience of our product. And so one of the things you mentioned there was about kind of all the data you capture about your clients and the use of data in, in your approach to underwriting. And so how do you balance the the need to have like really good data and probably large amount of data to be able to do proper risk selection with the kind of removing friction from the purchasing journey and making sure you're not asking a hundred questions to your underwriters? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's something we debate a lot internally, right? Or oh, wouldn't it be great if we could have this data point around this insured because because we've got a high, we've got a hypothesis around how that drives risk or could be a second patient factor. And I guess my philosophy is is to think about what are the the three to ten key data points I need around an insured to really understand their risk profile and kind of in conjunction with that, what product we should be offering them and how much we should be charging them. And really focusing on getting good quality data and keeping that data accurate for those three to 10 risk factors. And then everything else is a bonus. And, and really, we're moving in a direction where that, that other stuff is really becoming surplus to requirements and we're focusing on those three to 10 data points. Now, obviously, golden source is, is to go to the customer and ask them what they're doing and get some really good data around those three to 10. But more and more, we're using external data to see where we can fit in some of those gaps or we can get a good proxy for one of those pieces which we can be more comfortable about. And I guess the interesting thing about the US market, just to add into that, is we're working in the emitted market. 
So we have to file our rate plans and how we're calculating prices for all of our insureds with every regulator. So that's, that's all 50 states here in the US. And that has to be pretty simple, I would say, in comparison to some of the stuff you can do in the UK market. And so that really limits actually what we can use for pricing. And it means it's quite difficult to have a, a hundred factor model like you might do in the UK auto market. So really what we're doing is boiling down all of that interesting stuff into the few data points which really correlate with the risk. And then we're thinking about other points that we can control that underwriting journey that really is surplus as opposed to core competency. This is a million dollar question, right? So how do you identify what are the, those three to 10 factors? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. So if you can work that out for me, let me know, then uh, <laughs> we'll build that in. You know, it's, it's a test and learn approach, right? And I, we're not where we want to be yet in terms of that. There's obviously just a continuous journey of trying to improve that. But you know, it's, it's looking at what's already been done in the market, looking at the, the claims and experience data that we have or that we're building up, and just understanding from an insurer's point of view, the types of businesses they are, the types of claims they're bringing, and then thinking hard around whether the factors we're, we're collecting are really correlating with those. Right? And I guess a really good example is when we think about our small businesses and some of those who are rated on a, a payroll basis. Right? So you know, we'll look at the business and we'll say, well, we need to understand the size because the size drives size of risk and complexity. And a good way to think about that is, well, how much are they paying out to their employees from a wage drop point of view? And that's great until you magnify down into that nano part of, of, of the customer pool and you realize that quite often they don't have employees and therefore their wage roll is zero. And, and you, see, you can imagine having kind of some kind of fit line that working really, really well for the majority of that middle market. But when you scan down into the smaller stuff, it, it doesn't fit as well. And you know, I think that's a good example of where each carrier in the US is thinking about where their market proposition is and then making sure that their risk collection and pricing is working for that part of the market as opposed to the whole. Just one example, there's lots of places like that where you can think hard about a customer and think about whether the traditional pricing model is still working. Do you have any initiative around how do you constantly just add new data, external, in this case, external data to the risk so that in the future you can start doing backwards correlations and identifying new ones that could replace one of the existing ones? Is that something that you've got in flight? Yeah, you're, you're spot on that one. So it's, it's, for us, it is about that back correlation. So it's where can we test and find a new variable which allows us to replace a uh, current variable with something else. External data is the way that we do that. So you can imagine current book with current pricing and current performance, bringing a new variable and see if there's a stronger correlation with one of those new variables than with a, an existing variable, and then look at how we might replace that and move forward. Iterative process takes a lot of time. Most of the time we do that, we don't improve on the current. Right? So, so we're finding all these interesting stuff and it kind of works, but actually it's not as good as the existing variable we've got and we'll stay with what we are. But we're consistently learning about tweaks and the abilities we can do there. Now, one of the things we're doing here is, is we're using external data to do that back correlation so that we don't waste time asking customers for that information because adding that friction to the customer journey isn't worth it unless we can be really, really sure that variable is going to uh, give us some lift on our, our pricing curve. The couple of data points you mentioned, like revenue of the company, number of employees, it's not something that you can pull from a magic data source. Or even like, I mean, the... The best example is often the, what does the client do? What's the client activity? Yeah. So how are yeah. you thinking about, specifically, for example, client activity, how are you thinking about that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, the spot of one, it's, it's a really complicated piece. And if you think about those nano customers coming to us, if, if they haven't started their business yet, you know, by definition, there's no data anywhere on the revenue or the payroll and employees because they haven't started the business yet. And you haven't got that back set of data in a, you know, an industry database to go and look at. 
So what are they doing? So it's the nature of operations is what we refer to it here. Uh, that's probably the one you can get more on than you, you would be surprised. So there's, there's some really clever companies out there that are doing stuff around just looking at the name of the insured and their, their zip code or their location and trying to understand what they're doing from there. So, so someone who says, you know, they're you know, J&J landscaping. Well, that means a certain thing if you're based in Atlanta, but a different thing if you're based in Vermont. And so we know that if that customer is based in Vermont, yes, they might be doing landscaping during the summer, but then we also know through the winter, there's a good chance they're going to be doing snow blowing or ice removal or something else of a higher hazard nature. And so it's about bringing together those, those two or three different sources of data and being able to build up a picture of the nature of operations just based on something quite simple as a, a customer name or a business name. But there's, it's a real art to it, understanding what is useful and what isn't useful. So we've seen recently customers coming in with their insured name and having LLC at the end of their, their business name. And that triggering certain models to say, well, this person's probably a lawyer and, and because they're going off that LLC designation. Whereas really, that's just to do with the, the organization of how they built up the business and we can start to ignore that in favor of other keywords. But you know, to say we've solved that would be, would be jumping ahead quite a lot. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a real problem which the organization the market really does solve now is, is understanding what someone does in as exact way as possible. When you think about this, what you call nature of operations or the client activity, do you think about it both in terms of what's the client main activity, so landscaping, but also like, are you trying to find signals of sub-activities that you might not be so keen on underwriting? So is it that dual challenge of main activity yeah. and also what else are they doing? Yeah, 100%. So, so you take that example of a landscaper who's doing snow blowing or ice removal in, in the winter. Chances are that the claims are going to come from the snow blowing and the ice removal. Right? So, hmm. so even if that is 10% of their activity, maybe they do it one month out of the year, I, I still want to know about that. I still want to price that. I still want to underwrite the risk selection based on that. And I still want to cap limits based on that activity because that's the one that's going to drive the, the loss cost for us. You know, landscaping and snow blowing is probably an extreme example. But as you, even you get into things like understanding whether someone's a marketing consultant or a marketing consultant who also deploys technology solutions, just changes the nature of risk of what we might be selling to a customer. So you start to get into pieces of, well, actually, should that customer also be buying a cyber add-on or do they need a data and privacy exclusion on their policy as well? And just understanding more about the customer allows us to, to sell the right product to them at the right price for the right coverage. And so much of that is built up into, okay, well, what do you do? And actually, the more and more we work in the direct channel here in the US, we find that's actually a really tough question, even if you do ask that to a customer, because quite often their view of what they do doesn't quite line up with what the insurance policy is they're doing from a, from a price risk coverage point of view. Yeah, definitely. And you don't want to ask, again, going back to the specifics of the micro SME, you don't want to ask them 20 follow-up questions of, and do you do X and do you do Y, right? <laughs> yeah. So with this approach of being able to underwrite with a few questions, and doing much more of a portfolio underwriting approach, right? Have you had to do any change to the underwriting, to the product itself, to be able to underwrite with such few questions? Yeah, it's been in some places. So if you think about, I guess, coverage, and you think about limits and sublimits, you know, our, our portfolio written products are, are narrower in terms of coverage and intent. There may be something which is case underwritten, is complex, deservedly has an underwriting looking at every single risk. And therefore, they can afford broader coverage in broader terms. And that's just the nature of what we're doing. It's, it's to make sure that we are protected and we're offering the customer something appropriate. The way I like to think about it is, if we were to offer a very broad coverage on the portfolio, 
play, we'd have to be offering everyone that broad coverage and a lot of people wouldn't need it, but we need to be charging them for it because we wouldn't know who would need it. And so you end up with this very expensive, hard to understand, you know, boilerplated policy, which most of our nano and micro SMEs don't need. Yeah. And so what we've done is, is kind of really zoom in and say, well, look, this is, this is what we believe nano and micro SMEs need. It's a, it's a pretty standard industry product with some clarifications from Hiscox coming in to make sure the product's fit for purpose. And that's what we're going to sell. And what we see is people buying additional products on top of that where they've got a specific risk or something they need to get to. But really, yeah, portfolio underwriting, getting down to, to core coverage that customers need, charging for just what they need, and then being able to limit that so we're, you know, we're not too vastly impacted by negative selection or, or someone coming in who's got a bit of a spikier risk profile. That must be a risk, right? It's like if you, with this portfolio underwriting approaches, might be that the good clients go elsewhere where they provide them cheaper rates and you end up portfolio underwriting the, the bad ones. Just how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I like to think that in our company and all the other companies in the same market, you kind of got all your actuaries battling each other on, on negative selection, right? In a pure technical point of view, yes, every customer should shop to every carrier and they'll find the best price and they'll go and do that. Now, in, in actually what happens is that doesn't happen, right? Someone finds a quote, they like the journey, the price is probably what they expected and they, and they buy and purchase. So for us, yes, we need to balance that, that risk of negative selection, but we're also doing that in the world of, of brand, of product, of reputation for paying claims for the, the agent that we're working with on selling the account, whatever it might be. Price is just one component of that. So you know, the, the steer we have is, is we need to be within the market ballpark and people may nuance up and down and there might be places that we get selected against. But we're a portfolio player, and as long as we, we can keep driving the growth forward in a profitable way, I'm pretty comfortable. That makes total sense. So we, we've spoken about mostly kind of new business underwriting, right? Kind of how do you use a portfolio underwriting approach? How do you remove friction from that process? But then how do you think about then the, the ongoing monitoring of the book? Yeah, of course. And so the, the biggest one that we talk about a lot is, is renewals, right? And, you know, really think about, great, you've brought the business in, it's probably gone through a year of, of very limited activity, right? Few customers will claim, very few people want to call up and talk to their insurance company. So you get around to this renewal and it's a case of, well, can we just bind that policy again on the same terms or do we need to do an update? For his course, yeah, the vast majority of our customers go through an automated renewal. We roll over the same assumptions. We ask the customer, do they want to update anything? But in nine times out of 10, the policy looks exactly the same in year two as it did to in year one. And that's important for us. And we're, forever making that trade-off on that, that decision of, do we make an effort to talk to the customer and potentially get updated exposures or updated nature of operations, but doing so costs us money on the expense ratio. And it's that trade between loss ratio and expense ratio between accuracy of pricing or, or effort to go and talk to the customers. And where we've got to is we think it's a better customer experience and actually a better outcome for Hiscox if in the majority of times we don't even touch the renewal. So you know, at the extreme example, we've had customers on our book well, we have the same application that they, they put in 10 years ago, but we believe the risk profile for that segment is such that it doesn't warrant us touching them and understanding what they're doing now. So you've got someone who was buying a policy for a few hundred dollars back in 2012, still buying with us year after year with that same policy. And actually, if you look at those customers, you look at their, their CSAT scores or anything else, after they've had a claim or after they have had an interaction with us, they love it. It's, it's easy insurance. It does what they need to do. We pay claims. It's an affordable price. And really for these small business owners, it allows them to go back to doing what they want to be doing, which is running their business. No, no one's sat there waking up in the morning excited to go and talk to their insurance company. 
you know, the, the key part is then working out what is the 10% of customers who we do really touch because that loss ratio, expense ratio trade-off is important. What are the triggers of that 10%, right? Is, is it that you try to capture any signals of has the, has the risk profile evolved significantly or is it based on the risk profile? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a number of things, right? And, and again, uh, another multi-million dollar question of, of if you can work out where you're going to focus that resource to talk to the right people, you know, the, the portfolio would be a lot more profitable. It's a mixture of things. The biggest one for us is, is industry. So knowing those industries that might be fast growing, typically high hazard, might display a, a need for tighter underwriting or really understanding where, where the gray area is. They're the ones that I want to be talking to more often. I really want to understand and make sure they are in appetite and not moving out of appetite. That's tough and, and really, I wouldn't say we've cracked that. That's something that we're, we're working on actively right now. It's, it's a game of how do I focus a limited set of manual resources towards a set of risks that we want to go and touch, talk to. Yeah. And are you thinking about using external data for that too, right? Because you, you could potentially also find signals of a company growing significantly or adding the first few employees or things like that. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. And, you know, if you go back to the idea that a lot of our customers are just starting out, what we find is someone leaves a, a corporate career, maybe they become a, a consultant, perhaps they buy their insurance from his box with, a, with an idea of what they're going to be doing and an estimated revenue for the next 12 months. And then when it comes around to the renewal, well, they're 12 months through that process. Maybe they've pivoted slightly in terms of what they're doing. Maybe they've hired 10 people and they've grown 10 times exponentially. They're the customers I want to go and talk to because I want to understand, is what they're doing the same thing that they thought they were doing a year ago? Or have they completely pivoted and therefore they need to be re-underwritten? And yeah, external data can really help there. But there's also blind stocks in our portfolio of people who just the nature of their industry, maybe don't have a big online presence, don't sit in industry databases. They're the ones that becomes much harder. Yeah, definitely. It's been, again, going back specifically for this micro SME segment, right? Many of them, many landscape professionals might not have a website or a LinkedIn page, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're focusing on a, a number of very exciting areas. What would you say is like the next big thing you want to crack in terms of casualty underwriting? Yeah, I'd, I'd say more of a more of an evolution than a than a single big thing, right? Just kind of constantly tweaking everything that we're working on and, and rolling out. You know, one one big thing for us is just as the as the Hiscox you would say business scales up and we get more efficient, really looking at that next pool of risk that we can capture from a from a loss ratio point of view, right? Just just being able to move into more of that high hazard, more interesting risk increases our adjustable market. That's all exciting stuff. Uh, coming 2023, we've got a bigger play within our, our bot products. That's, that's the liability and property kind of combined policy. There's some interesting stuff going there, but we're doing that from a backdrop of mass inflation in the US and worldwide. Uh, and then also the CAC component that we've just seen from Hurricane E and playing with that as well. And there's some real kind of you know, tactical challenges we've overcome there to make sure that we're writing that product in a, in a profitable way. But again, it's more of the same. Micro and nano SMEs, selling them a product which really fits for their needs and doing that in a digital automated way is, is really the evolution we're looking at. Yeah, and probably for those people who are listening who are less familiar with your area of the business, probably, I mean, you are by already probably growing double digits anyway, right? So it's about maintaining that, yeah. that, that level of growth with, with that consistent risk selection. So we, we touched on new business renewals, which was quite interesting. How about MTAs, right? And so mid-term adjustments yeah. is something that kills every micro-insurer, right? Because like the moment you have to manually touch an MTA, you probably are losing money. 
yeah, you know, in the extreme cases, you've got the customer who calls up every month wanting to make an adjustment to their policy, right? And it gets painful. So, so there's a couple of things we do here. One is is we keep our policy broad enough um, and, and flexible enough that a customer doesn't have to call us every year. So take, for example, uh, declared revenue caps. We're pretty comfortable if a customer has given us a declared revenue and they're growing above that, they don't need to contact us during mid-year or renewal to update that. We'll, we'll allow them to keep growing without capping their coverage. So that takes away some calls and there's other mechanisms like that that we do. But really what we are finding is during that NTA process, customers do want to talk to someone. By the nature of this, something has changed or they need something changing in their policy. And actually, you know, being able to speak to a human, understand the change that you're going through in your policy uh, and making that update quickly and easily, we, we do see as a big win. So whilst we, we are digitizing NTAs and we're making the, the low effort ones uh, simpler, um, actually, this is a really a good point that we can build that engagement with the customer, showcase how, how easy his books is to work with and make those changes quickly. But you're right. It's the efficiency play and the cost of doing those NTAs is, is pretty painful. For us, though, it's still maybe having a human front of that, digitizing the back end. So it's, it's quick and easy and low touch. So the percentage of customers requesting an MTA sounds like it's reasonably low in your book or not? Yeah, reasonably. I mean, we'd all like it to be lower, right? Yeah. But, um, we're not drowning in MTAs, I guess, compared to, to some, some carriers or some organizations who, who see a lot of actors. Well, it's been fantastic to catch up with you, Steve. I think we worked together almost 10 years ago. Uh, back at Hiscox in the UK since then, I've moved on. You've kind of moved to the US. I think it's truly inspiring to see, as I said at the very beginning, right? I think your intersection of actuarial, analytics, strategy, and now underwriting in driving like a, a different way or a new way of looking at underwriting micro SME. So thank you so much again for joining me. It's been a real pleasure having you, Steve. Well, thank you for having me on the, on the podcast. It's been great chat. Fantastic. See you soon, Steve. Making Risk Flow is brought to you by Zytora. If you enjoy this podcast, consider subscribing to Making Risk Flow in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. To find out more about Zytora, visit Zytora.com. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.